again to the strange brew podcast my name's jason barnard and that was the lust for life tour and the iggy pop classic five foot one and that's because i've got clem burke who features in the lust for life tour known for his work with blondie as well as actually iggy pop and we'll be covering all of that here today on the strange brew so let's hear my chat with the great clem burke Thanks for agreeing to speak with me. I mean, firstly, it's helpful to talk about the uh, Lust for Life tour. All right, cool. I think the one thing that stands out for me was just the amazing reception that you guys had. You had lots of media attention. It went down so well. And crucially, it just looked like great fun and great music. Yeah, it was really, really fun. And it was great to work with the the people that I was working with on that. I mean, of course, Glenn came on at the last minute. It was a bit crazy because originally it was supposed to be a 
Tony Sales, who was uh, along with his brother Hunt Sales, were the uh, rhythm section on both the Idiot album and Lust for Life. And for one reason or another, as uh, time got closer, Tony wasn't able to commit to uh, traveling. And so we had to uh, cancel our engagement in Japan, which was a bit of a disappointment. I always enjoy going to Japan. Last time I was there, I was with a band called The Empty Hearts, a band I was involved in with uh, a few people, Elliot Easton from The Cars being one of them. And we put two albums out a while back. And then uh, some people in the band lost interest during the pandemic. It was very disappointing for me once again to not be able to carry on with The Empty Hearts. But anyway, at the last minute, we were able to get Glenn Matlock to come in. And so we kind of changed the whole kind of idea of the band in some ways. Uh, Glenn just had a new album coming out. So we were able to do a few of his songs. And then, you know, we did some Pistol songs and uh, just kind of got changed around a bit. And uh, Katie Putrick in particular was uh, really amazing. You know, she really rose to the occasion. She was almost became like a female Iggy. And also, you know, the lyrics took on a less misogynist uh, uh, character, you know, and mm. they became more like the beat poetries that which they sort of really are in a way. And so Katie was amazing. And then Lewis and Florence were both amazing uh, guitar player and uh, keyboard player. And, and Kevin Armstrong, of course, I was familiar with his work. And Kevin was great as the MD. And uh, yeah, the reception was pretty amazing. I think once Glenn joined, it became a little bit more coherent in what we were trying to do. And the rehearsals were really, really enjoyable. And uh, a lot of the gigs just harkened back to the good old days, uh, especially as that towards the end, there's that club in Hastings, a pub. Uh, they have a gig upstairs. Ah. That place was so jam packed. It was really reminiscent of being like at some place like CBGB or Dingwalls or something back in the day. And the enthusiasm for the whole, for the band and for the music was fantastic. So uh, we're doing it again, as you know, uh, back in March. We're going to, going to change some of the things up a little bit, but uh, the whole band will be intact and uh, really looking forward to it. Yeah, the footage on YouTube is amazing. There's um, you guys doing a five foot one live, which is something from Iggy's. The new Values. Yeah, New Values album. Right. Yeah. And, you know, then. That was a really good choice. And uh, yeah, many of the songs, I mean, we started off with doing the Lust for Life album. And then, of course, we did a selection of other songs by Iggy. And also we did sort of um, just a homage to Tom Verlaine and uh, David Bowie. We did um, the Tom Verlaine song that Bowie did on on Lodger, um, Kingdom Come, it's called. And uh, that was a, a little side thing that we did that people seem to really enjoy and you know, we're going to try to bring in some other songs uh, on the next uh, go around. But uh, yeah, I mean, the enthusiasm amongst the members of the band and also the audience was was fantastic and really kind of spurred us on. Every show wound up being sold out. Tom Wilcox, who organized it, I knew Tom from the ICA. I did a QA and a uh, a while back when I was just began working on my memoir several years ago and i did a q a at the uh, ica that tom put on so uh, tom and i have worked together before so he's somebody who can really uh, do a great job on putting these sort of things together so uh, i was really happy to work once again with tom as wilcox as well <laughs>
got so many connections with Iggy playing on his album, The Zombie Birdhouse. But actually, possibly around the Lust for Life era, you toured with Iggy with Blondie, didn't you? Right. Well, the, the first national tour in the United States that we did with Blondie was in support of Iggy Pop when they were promoting, uh, touring the uh, the Idiot album. And he was doing a selection of songs from Lust for Life, but that album had not been released as of yet. Right. And of course, famously on that tour, uh, David Bowie was the keyboard player. So that's really what our relationship with David and Iggy began back then. And, you know, with Blondie, we had played at uh, the Club Max's Kansas City on the weekend, two shows, two sold out shows. And we got into, uh, after the second show, about four o'clock in the morning, we got into a caravan. I always say the same thing. I have no idea who was driving. There was one bed that we basically all kind of crashed out in or slept on the floor. And this caravan traveled us. We traveled to uh, Montreal for the first gig. And um, we got arrived at the venue early and we just went into the dressing room. We were just all kind of shagged out from being driving all night. And then the door opened and David and Iggy walked in and introduced themselves. And that was the beginning of uh, the tour. And uh, it really showed them as really uh, gentlemen and really, uh, you know, they were very uh, gracious to us on the tour and very helpful. And I remember David would would watch our sound checks quite a bit. And of course, I would watch their sound checks. And it was amazing. They were always, especially with David, he'd always be rearranging or sticking in new bits or background vocals on the songs. So the songs, the arrangements were growing as the tour was going on. And uh, that's when I first met uh, Tony Sales and Hunt Sales as well. And then I, I had a band with Tony Right at the end, of, after Blondie stopped, I had a band called Checkered Past. Ah, oh, yeah. Uh, we did one record on EMI America, and that band included Steve Jones from the Pistols as well. So uh, there's a lot of connections between all the people involved in the whole. And, of course, Kevin Armstrong was uh, Bowie's MD at Live Aid and also played guitar on the the Blah 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 album, Iggy album. And Glenn uh, wrote some songs with Iggy and played on the Soldier album. And also toured with Iggy quite a bit, I believe, uh, uh, at some point. And it was you and Chris Stein who, who worked with Iggy for his um, Zombie Birdhouse album. Right. Chris produced it. And prior to that recording of that album, I had been on tour with Iggy. And unfortunately, I was hoping that the touring band would have made that album Zombie Birdhouse. But because of, I think, budgetary uh, things, I think Jimmy Iggy Pop was a little bit down on his luck at that time. And so he kind of just wanted to make a very minimal record. And, and use uh, some of the advance, I think, for living expenses and stuff. I toured with um, with Iggy, with Carlos Alomar on guitar from David Bowie's band, and uh, a guy called Rob Dupre, who I knew from the New York scene, who was in a band called The Mumps, yeah. and Gary Valentine, who was my high school mate, who began Blondie with me. We had three guitarists and a guy called Mike Page, who played with uh, Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls on bass. And we did a six-week tour uh, promoting, ostensibly continuing the promotion of the party album that Iggy had made, the rock and roll party album. And we opened for the Rolling Stones for two nights in a giant, massive uh, Pontiac Silver Dome uh, with no sound check. And it was uh, Iggy, Santana, and the Rolling Stones, like 70,000 people indoors. So that was pretty uh, interesting experience, to say the least. But yeah, there's always been a connection with Iggy. And of course... I bought those Stooges records when I was a kid, you know, I mean, 
I think famously the Ramones uh, always would say that the four of them were the only each person, the only other three people that they knew that liked the Stooges were that wound up being the rest of the Ramones. And uh, I kind of had that same kind of little rat pack of friends who was who were into Bowie and T-Rex and the Stooges and all when most people, especially in the States, were into, you know, I don't know what, the Grateful Dead and things like that, more like, you know, hard rock and all that. And I was always into the uh, more uh, artistic, experimental type of rock and roll, you know, that, that Bowie was doing or people like that. And of course, I'm I'm very influenced by uh, the whole British music scene in general. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it all began with the, you know, the, the so-called British invasion of the mid-60s when the Beatles were on at Sullivan et cetera, et cetera. Everyone my generation cites that as being the, uh, you know, the turning point of wanting to be in a band and to start a group. And then with the Rolling Stones coming along, kind of like broadened the spectrum of how you can be in a group. And uh, so then, then it just kind of carried on through, you know, the Yardbirds, the Who, the, the Small Faces, you know, all those bands, very influential. So I, that kind of continued into my, you know, interest in people like Bowie and T-Rex and Slade and bands like that as well. Cockney Rebel, was a big favorite of mine. I, I famously saw them play at the uh, the Bottom Line in New York, very small club. It was a really, really great show. You said it before, but one final link with this tour is the rhythm section that you've got with Glenn Matlock, and you're playing now with Glenn right. in Blondie, and the footage of Glastonbury playing all the great Blondie hits like Atomic. It just feels like you're all locked in, and the band is as vital as ever. Yeah, I mean, it's... Blondie, it's almost like a super Blondie. You know, we've had some changes. Uh, Chris Stein is very active on the latest album that we've done that's yet to be released. Our longtime bass player, Lee Fox, he kind of had some issues where he wasn't really able to travel. And we were just about to do this arena tour last March 2022 of the UK. So literally about a week before I rang up Glenn and asked him if he was available to do it, which he was. And uh, He's continued to work with us since, and he has a song on the new Blondie album that's yet to be released, as I mentioned. And uh, Glenn and I uh, had worked together on a couple of different projects as well. We had one group called Slinky Vagabond uh, that featured Earl Slick on guitar. And then we had another group called the International Swingers with uh, a guy called Gary Twin as the lead singer who had some success in uh, Australia with a band called Supernaut. And he was invited to uh, to do a tour of Australia. So uh, James Stevenson, the uh, guitarist, uh, the UK guitarist, and Glenn and I uh, were all friends with Gary. So we uh, went on this tour of the of uh, Australia with Gary, and then we continued the band. And we did release an album that's out there, International Swingers. But Glenn and I have a long history together. Uh, also, at the height of Blondie, I had this first idea of having a so-called for lack of a better word, supergroup. I was trying to put a band together with Glenn and Eric Faulkner from the Bay City Rollers and Paul Weller. Wow. Never really came to fruition, but we've had a few drinks of it and talked about it back in the day, but it never it never happened. But I thought at the time, the juxtaposition of having a Bay City Roller and a Sex Pistol in the same band was pretty interesting. And it would have been some great, they, they were all great songwriters. So that would have been, would have been an interesting band.
such a um, great mix of influences and, and musicians across your career. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of Blondie's early years, it was through the New York club scene that all oh, you guys coalesced Blondie. Yeah, well, there was a place called Club 82, 82 East 4th Street, which is, was a sort of a, a gay disco, really, more or less. And uh, disco music was the predominant uh, music that was be played at the club. But one night a week, they would have rock and roll. And uh, the stage was set up behind the bar, similar to like if you went to like a, a strip club or something like the a band would be set up behind the a stage would be set up behind the bar. And so bands like the New York Dolls, Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys, a band called Teenage Lust, uh, the band called the Neon Boys, which was the predecessor to the band television, would play at this club. And I had a band at the time called Sweet Revenge, and it was a kind of a glam rock band. And uh, we played there and uh, Chris Stein and Debbie Harry had a band called the Stilettos and they also played there. But the main thing was everyone kind of hung out there on the, I think it was on the Tuesday or Wednesday night was the rock and roll night. You'd see people like Lou Reed and, and David Bowie at the club once in a while. And uh, along with people like uh, 
Joey Ramone, who was known as uh, Jeff Starship at the time. He had a band called Sniper and people like Lenny Kay. And it was the, it was right around the corner from CBGB. So it was kind of funny how it's almost like everyone kind of like kind of changed their image a bit and went around the corner and started making music at CBGB. But Club 82 was uh, was uh, definitely integral to the beginnings of the whole uh, New York scene, kind of the the tail end of the New York Dolls glam rock and into the sort of more bohemian underground scene that happened at CBGB. That's kind of how it all began. One of the great early Blondie tracks that, that I love is uh, Out in the Streets, which was uh, originally a Shangri-La's uh, song, I think. Who was into the Shangri-La's and the girl groups in the band, or was it all of you were, were fond of that sound? Well, we were all fond of that sound, and that was one of the common denominators that brought us together as far as... Uh, being musically compatible, uh, Chris, Debbie, and I, we love the Ronettes, we love the Shangri-Las, uh, we love the Velvet Underground, and uh, you know the, the New York bands of. Uh, but the girl group sound, the whole Brill Building, the whole uh, you know Motown, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, things like that. We were all in. We were, all of us loved that music, which was very unfashionable at the time. Yeah. Basically. And of course, the, the New York Dolls were into yeah. bands like the Ronettes and the Shangri-Las. So that influence kind of carried over in that way as well. But uh, when I first met up uh, with Chris and Debbie for a little bit of a chat, we commiserated on our liking of, of artists like the Shangri-Las, for instance. And uh, that was one of the songs that was uh, in the early Blondie repertoire. And then we actually re-recorded it on the uh, the album that we did when we got back together called No Exit, we did another version of it. But our original demo uh, included uh, Out in the Streets uh, by the Shangri-Las and the early version of What Turned Into Heart of Glass and a couple other tracks that never really were professionally recorded. I mean, they're out there now. They've been in box sets and things like that. But the song Platinum Blonde, which was kind of like Debbie's calling card, was never really officially released, uh, you know, or really officially recorded other than in a demo in a basement in Queens back in, uh, I think, early 74 or, or something like that, or late 74. But, uh, I mean, yeah, that one of the early uh, muses for Blondie was the whole girl group sound. And I think when you hear a song on our first album, like In the Flesh, we even have Ellie Greenwich singing back up on it, who, who co-wrote the yeah. Leader of the Pack and Out in the Streets and songs like that.
think a, a bit of that girl group influence came into ex-offender for example oh absolutely i mean that was kind of a homage to the whole phil specter sound in a lot of ways and it's funny enough how that song came out right around the same time as uh, born to run by bruce springsteen ah. there's a lot of similarities between those two songs i think you know springsteen was uh, re- reaching for the the sound of a phil specter wall of sound at the time as well. And, you know, there's the guitar riff in X Offender that's reminiscent of the guitar riff in, in Born to Run. And we had no idea that each of us were doing that at the time. It just kind of coincided literally almost exactly at the same time. I think maybe Born to Run came out, the album came out a little earlier than the Blondie album, but uh, right around that same time. But that's kind of the sound of New York, you know, a lot of it, uh, the early Brill Building sound and, uh, of course, Spectre moved to California, but, you know, it all kind of started in New York and uh, we were all exposed to that. Uh, another song uh, that's very New York is the song Denise, which was done by a band called Randy and the Rainbows, which was what they call in the States a doo-wop group, you know, a bunch of guys standing on a corner and vocally harmonizing. And, uh, you know, we went on to record that as Denis and it became a big hit for us in the UK. So, um we're very influenced by the sound in New York City. We still are to this day, along with many. I mean, we carried on with, you know, with the influence in hip hop and all that as well later on. It's interesting you mentioned a song like Danae and there's obviously the Tidy's High, but you have the knack of the songs that were covers. People weren't aware that they were covers and the original material and you couldn't really tell the difference. Yeah, it was Deb- Debbie's idea to do Denise, for sure. I recall that. It was Chris's idea to do Tidy's High. I think we all, uh, the song Hanging on the Telephone, which is by a band called The Nerves, a guy called Jeffrey Lee Pierce, who went on to be the founder of a band called The Gun Club, was a big uh, Blondie fan, actually became our president of our fan club for some time, which some people may find that hard to believe uh, when you think of Jeffrey Lee Pierce and his incarnation as the lead singer of The Gun Club. And he sent us a, a compilation tape when we were on tour in Japan just for to have something to listen to. And one of the songs included was uh, Hanging on the Telephone. So we all thought, wow, that's a really cool song and uh, decided to cover that as well. But yeah, we do have a knack for cover songs. I, I would like to make a, I would, it sounds almost cliche, but I wouldn't mind making a a covers album, yeah. a complete different covers album. We used to do a lot of different songs. We used to do a song called Big Man in Town by the Four Seasons. You know, we, used to, we did Heat Wave very early on, yeah. very early on. And, uh, Quite a few other songs. I mean, we've covered Jet Boy by the New York Dolls. We covered uh, Pet Cemetery by the Ramones. Uh, uh, you Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory by Johnny Thunders. That's a great song. So, yeah. Sometimes I think uh, I had this idea to do a, a punk rock or a sort of whatever you want to call it, New Wave or New York band. We also used to do a song by television called Venus de Milo. I was thinking we could have an album called Safety Pinups. <laughs> Like Bowie's yeah. pinups, safety pinups, you know. But um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind doing a co- full covers album. I also, I'd love to do a, a disc, complete straight ahead disco, yeah. like organic seventies disco album. 
But we never really have a, a particular theme when we go into record with Blondie. It all just kind of comes about quite naturally and organically. People come up with ideas and we just in, interpret them whichever which way we think that the song should be going, whether it be me coming up with a beat or you know someone come up with a guitar riff. But the raw material is just there and we take it and it becomes like Blondie's material. We're never going with an idea. We're going to make an album like this. mention um disco heart of glass obviously is a a key track uh from blondie that has that feel but what was it like playing with a, a, a drum machine on that was that challenging or just something that came natural to you You weren't defensive you know this is a drum machine we shouldn't have them you seem to be open well yeah i mean basically this is before digital recording so we it was an analog way of doing things so basically what what i did was um there was the, the Roland uh, drum machine, uh, the same drum machine that, that's on uh, like Roxy Music Dance Away and famously on Phil Collins in the air tonight. It was that particular Roland drum machine that had just come out that everyone was using. But it wouldn't, uh, there was no way you could sync that up with a synthesizer, or arpeggiated synthesizer. So you'd have to do it piecemeal. So um, essentially, we'd have to do it bar by bar. And what we did first off was I kind of made the bass drum, the click track. So I played along with the synthesizer and just played the quarter notes on the bass drum and built the track up from there. So I wasn't inhibited at all about experimenting with drum machines. I mean, we've carried on that tradition more so as we go on. And live, some of the songs are programmed where I do play to a click and to some programming and other songs are live. It's about 60-40 split 
of the Blondie live show. So, I, you know, I, whatever works for the song, I've always kind of been open-minded that way. I was kind of a not really particularly fond of Heart of Glass when we first recorded it as far as uh, doing it live. But um, it's gone on to be a, you know absolute classic song, and people seem to never get tired of hearing it. It's kind of like Kraftwerk meets Donna Summer, really.
would you say that the Blondie Owl Meet to the Beat had a bit more of um, a, a live feel than, say, Parallel Lines? Well, Parallel Lines was recorded live as well without any okay. programming and all, but it was a kind of a reverse psychology used by our producer, Mike Chapman, because, uh, you know, it's been said many times as he was such a taskmaster and a very arduous uh, procedure to record Parallel Lines. I never really felt that way. I really respected Mike for his past history of working with people like the Sweet, Susie Quattro, and, and writing songs like Tiger Feet, like Bubblegum Glam Rock songs. Mm. And uh, But Mike was uh, pretty well-minded on the idea that he wanted to make Parallel Lines the classic album that it became and, and really kind of worked us pretty hard on, on getting the basic tracks correctly. And so when it came time to do Eat to the Beat, he almost used kind of a reverse psychology on us and kind of just let us kind of go for it. Prime example of that being Dreaming, which is probably the first take. I never expected that to be the uh, final basic drum track, you know, and Mike, everyone thought it was just great. I was just kind of having a jam on the song, kind of running through it, you know, as we uh, were beginning to run it down in the studio. So, uh, yeah, the, the Eat to the Beat is our most rock album, a rock and roll album, I would say. Something like the song Eat to the Beat, you know, with the harmonica and uh, pretty raucous and uh, accidents uh, never happen. I think that's on, of course, and then there's like uh, Union City Blue on Eat to the Beat. There's big drums, Power Station. Yeah, it's it's our most rock and roll album, I would say. But then you have something like Atomic on there, which kind of carries on the tradition of Heart of glass in a way.
it's amazing that there were there were singles that were number one in the UK. Sunday Girl being an example that weren't even released in the states. And you seem to have a right. a different career at, at times in the UK in terms of some of the material that was released. Yeah, it's it's really interesting actually. Uh, I kind of pointed that out many times. Um, songs like uh, well, it kind of starts with Denis, which was a big hit, and then. Uh, Presence there also was a big hit off the Plastic Letters album, then carried on with, with the release of Sunday Girl, uh, Hanging on the Telephone, um, Picture This. Were all big hits in the UK, but as you said, they weren't even released in the States. I think the US marketing marketing people in the States didn't really know what to make of the album at first. The first single was the cover of the Buddy Holly, I'm Gonna Love You Too song in the States. I don't think it was in the UK. Yeah, it, it is really interesting that, that more sort of like pop blondie pop songs. And then in America, in the United States, we've had four number ones, but they were all of a different sort of genre, each one, it's starting with Heart of Glass and then uh, carrying on with um, with Call Me, which was kind of a one-off that we did with Giorgio Moroda producing. And then uh, Tide is High and Rapture, all kind of different songs. And uh, all of them number one in the States. But uh, as you mentioned, things like Picture This or... Sunday Girl were, were never never hit or or released as singles in America. Yeah. It is like two separate careers in a way. And, uh, you know, we were always, as I mentioned, you know, we were always very influenced by the British music scene. And uh, to have success in that way has always been very satisfying for all of us. And, you know, kind of continues. I mean, the tour we did last year with Glenn, the arena tour was great. It was all sold out and really fantastic. Yeah. 
then coming back in the late 90s, and again, a UK number one with Maria, there's not many groups that would be able to do that. That must have been extra special. Yeah, but I think it had a lot to do with our clothes, our suits. I'm only kidding. Um, We did. We really laid the groundwork for that No Exit album. We did a tour prior to the release of the album around Christmas time of 98, I believe. And then Maria was released in early 99, and it kind of was set up pretty well to uh, be accepted by the British public. But yeah, it was pretty phenomenal at the time uh, to have a so-called comeback release go right to number one. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was just the beginning of a whole new era for Blondie that continues to this day, especially in the UK. Uh, But we are finding we're getting a lot more uh, recognition in the States uh, funny enough, maybe it all kind of began when we were inducted into the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I really almost never expected to have happen. And we were eligible for quite some time. And then we were finally uh, inducted. Uh, it was a bit of a acrimonious situation for us, but uh, was really glad to be inducted. And uh, just recently, uh, Billboard magazine has named Debbie uh Number seven greatest lead singer of all time. They've done for some reason they've done this list of uh, fifty greatest lead singers, not artists. For instance, Bowie, right, or people like that are not included. But people like Roger Daltrey or Grace Slick or obviously Mick Jagger. And so Debbie's in the top ten. And 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 I always said that she was as equally as amazing as someone like a Mick Jagger or Jim Morrison. Or David Bowie. I mean, she's obviously she's a woman. So for me, she's the female equivalent of all of those people, just as as brilliantly talented as them. You know, she really reminds me of of David Bowie a lot, Debbie, her whole approach to making music and delegating other musicians and her wordsmith, uh, whatever it is, her, her brilliant lyrics.
Blondie album release was Pollinator and songs like Long Time, they're just as vital as the songs that you were doing in the, the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, we're, we're particularly happy with Long Time. I mean, that, that Pollinator album was kind of a one-off because most of the songs were from outside writers. And uh, there's a band called Blood Orange, uh, Dev Hines, and he wrote that song Long Time. And uh, that's another thing with, with Debbie and Chris. They're always kind of aware of uh, artists that I may not be aware of. I was not aware of Dev Hines particularly. And then it comes to pass that he is quite well known and uh, quite credible. And, uh, you know, we're happy to get that song from him. And uh, yeah, long time. We did a good job on that song. That whole Pollinator album is great. I think we had a more of an objectivity working on it because a lot of the songs were from outside writers. I mean, the, our keyboard player, Matt Katz Bowen wrote a couple of songs on there. I think Debbie and Chris maybe wrote one or two on there. And then the rest were from people like Johnny Marr and Dave Steck from uh, TV on the radio uh, wrote the song fun. And uh, we had a, we had a good time making that record.
you mentioned the empty hearts earlier and uh, on remember days like these that featured Ringo Starr how did that happen actually Wally Palmer from a band called the Romantics who's the lead singer in the empty hearts did a several tours with Ringo in his all-star band and we I cut the track with the band and then um, we decided we could maybe get Ringo to add his drums. And so I wound up playing tambourine on it. And on the first Empty Hearts album, uh, we were lucky enough to work with Ian McLaughlin. Ian McLaughlin. Small faces. Faces. Right. right. Ian McLaughlin. Right. Uh, the small faces and the faces. Um, I had done a, a record with a guy called BP Fallon. And we we got Ian on that record. We did it in Austin, Texas, where Ian was living at the time. And so um, when we did the Empty Hearts album, I, I rang up Ian. And it just coincidentally had happened to be in uh, upstate New York, right, when uh, we were in the studio. So he was able to come in and spend the day with us. So we had two amazing people on, one on each of the albums, Ian on the first Empty Hearts album and Ringo on the, the second one. Yeah, I was happy to play a tambourine along with Ringo on drums on that. It's amazing. So you've got the Lust for Life tour next year. I think that's right. late February, early March. You've got so many projects, exciting projects on the go. What's exciting you coming up over the next uh, six months, a year? Well, I've written a rock opera with two of my friends, uh, Andy and Debbie Harris, who have the band called Bootleg Blondie. Ah. And they are a tremendously talented couple. And the reason they have bootleg blondies because they were trying to do their original music for some time and not really making much headway with that. And then they had formed a sort of a, a pub rock band doing covers. And whenever they would do a blondie song, they'd get a great reaction. So they decided to have this blondie tribute band, which I actually toured with. And while I was touring with them, it was before the pandemic, I suggested that maybe we start writing some original material together. And I suggested that we perhaps use London as our muse. So we've written a rock opera called The Big Smoke, just getting ready to put a single out digitally on uh, the Blow Up label. I don't know if you're familiar with the club Blow Up or the, the label Blow Up. Yeah. So we're going to put out a little teaser, an excerpt from the rock opera, The Big Smoke, and that's going to be coming out soon. And also, uh, um, you know, I've been working on my memoir. It's almost a cliche. Everybody's got a book, right? But I actually have a legitimate book deal so the memoir hopefully will be out next christmas but um i've just been meeting with uh uk publishers now because we secured the deal in the u.s first uh surprisingly enough because i was always thinking that you know if anyone be interested would be the british public so that's happening and uh several other things i'm actually playing at the hundred club in october with a side project I have called the Split Squad. We've played the 100 Club several times. We're there, I think, around October 25th. And then I did a record during lockdown with a band called The Tearaways that's on uh, Dirty Water Records. It's available. And we're going to be playing at the 100 Club in November. So I'm going to be back in the UK in October and November. And then coming up right away is uh, we're doing some U.S. festivals with Blondie in September. We just did a, a show the other day in Vancouver, British Columbia, with uh, Brian Adams and Belinda Carlisle and uh, Inhaler. You know in, the band Inhaler? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know Bono's uh, son's band, who are very good. And uh, we have some uh, more Blondie shows in September. And uh, looking forward to the release of the Blondie album next year. And uh, But the big smoke, 
the rock opera that's coming that'll be out some point we've re- we've recorded 28 songs so far and a, a guy called pat collier used to be in the vibrators has a great studio in lewisham so we've been working there i just came back from the uk about maybe two weeks ago so there's a lot going on for next year uh, i've got to complete the, the the memoir it's mostly completed but uh i'm real excited about that and uh, you know, there'll be some stories to be told, uh, some real insight into the whole Blondie experience. And of course, with all the other people I've worked with over the years. So um, now that the deal's in place, you know, I, I kind of was kind of my muse during lockdown to keep myself occupied. Then I kind of put it aside. But then when there was seemed to be real interest in it. So now I'm really kind of very excited about completing it and having it released. So there's quite a few things. Yeah, Clem, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh... All right, mate. You've got loads going on uh, over here in the UK, so it'll be good to see you again, including next year for Lust for Life. Right, Lust for Life for sure. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure there'll be many uh, people turning out that were out turned out last time, and probably have some new uh, new people as well. And uh, so that begins uh, right at the end of February, I believe. The last, I think it's a leap year next year, so I think the first gig is on the 29th of February. At least the first date has sold out already, so people need to get the tickets uh, pretty soon, otherwise they might miss out. Right. I mean, it, it more than likely will be sold out by the time we arrive in the UK to do it. Well, I arrive. Everyone else is based there. Okay, Jason, thank you very much. Great to chat with you, Matt. See you later. Bye-bye. Okay, see you. Cheers. Bye. Days. Remember days like these. So remember days. Remember days. Remember days like these. So remember days. Remember days. Remember days like these. So 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 remember days. Remember
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.